Hi, Brian. Hey. So where are we? We are in real life. <laughs> like, in you, person, in you mean? In person, yeah. But we, were we not in real life before? Uh, <laughs> we were in electronic life, which is funny because we're at a exhibition of electricity flowing through artwork. Yeah. So we're in San Francisco. Yep. Neither, neither of us, us are from San Francisco. <laughs> I have family here. You used to go to college here. I just flew up to this morning and I'm flying back down <laughs> later today. <laughs> Because this is really special. First of all, it's special because when was the last time we recorded in the same room? It I don't know. the first episode. The first episode? Randall Park. No, we did Wedding Banquet. Oh, in the same, in the same room. room. I know. I don't know if you guys know this. We don't <laughs> record in the same room a lot. Or in the same city. I really enjoyed that because being able to do the podcast with you and record not in the same room still had a semblance of normalcy. <laughs> <laughs> We're sort of like the rest of the podcasting world had to catch up with what we had been doing all along. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Me recording from my place, you recording from your place, and us just messing up the audio a lot <laughs> is just our norm. So, yeah, so and now it's just like, oh, it's the pandemic. That's why we do that. We've been perfecting the art of good enough. <laughs> good enough. <laughs> Saturday school. Saturday school. Good enough. Good enough. It's actually like how we treated actual Saturday school. Yeah, yeah. In real school, you have to get an A. Saturday school. No, I mean, the fact that we're here is good enough. But now, actually, looking back, it's like, no, we should have paid more attention to Saturday school. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. As you guys know, we're doing our eighth season on Asian-American sci-fi films. And we're here in SF MoMA for the Namju Peck exhibit. Yeah. Um, There's a huge retrospective going on right now. In a museum? We're, we're in a museum. We're wearing our masks. Yeah. I wasn't aware of him until you told me about him. And I'm so sad that I've gone so much of my life without knowing about him. I feel like your artistic practice, your literary practice, <laughs> would have been highly influenced by him if you had known. I feel like I am influenced by him. I just don't know it. Yeah. Or, I, or I feel like... This is what I've been looking for my whole life. And then now that I see it, I understand what I do. Mm. <laughs> There's something kind of sci-fi about that too, right? Yeah. Like an alternate version of you. Yeah, yeah, kind of. But specifically, the alternate version of you is this Korean man <laughs> with the 1960s and 70s. Do you feel this way too? Do you feel like this represents you or no? <laughs> You're just like, no, no it's not, you. Not the way. Because I know him also as like this historical icon. For those who don't know, like, Andrew Pike is, they, they call him the creator of video art, shooting on videotape, uh, transmitting video images via, like, electronic signals, closed-circuit television, uh, and he did it in such, like, a playful, anarchic, Dadaist uh, way. He, he was a part of the Fluxus movement. Um, he knew John Cage, which... I think of John Cage as somebody from yesteryear than the fact that... Yeah, because I feel like these people like John Cage and Allen Ginsberg, you don't understand that there were Asian Americans around fooling out with them. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know time. if Namjoon Pike would have called himself an Asian American. He's a Korean national. He studied in Japan and Germany and ended up in the U.S. He existed before the Asian American movement, and perhaps if he came a decade later, maybe he would have identified differently, or maybe he would have saw his work politically different. I try to, even now, I try to claim first-generation Asian immigrants as Asian-American. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they want me to claim them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's an even more extreme example. He saw himself as a global figure. Yeah, yeah. And not as, but how, why as an American. Is, yeah, but why is Asian American not a global thing? That's I feel true. pretty global. I, I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. He's trained in classical music, so a lot of his works are inspired by music. Hence the John Cage connection. Right. And there's a quote on the board. <laughs> you know where I was going with this. <laughs> where, you know, you see a lot of his performance art. It's not quite him playing classical music. It's like him using weird things to bang on pianos to make weird sounds. One of the performances he had, he played on the piano, but then ran into the audience and attacked his friends with scissors and then threw shampoo at them. <laughs> the quote from him from 1962 is, why is this music? Because it is not not music. And we linked that to Asian America. Why is Namjoon Pike Asian American? Well, maybe he's not not Asian American. Yeah. And I think this is like the way that he's messing around with this category of music is sometimes the way we like to mess, mess around, around with Asian America. With, yeah, even the, even when it dilutes it politically. A little <laughs> bit. But I don't know. I think in trying to break these kind of boundaries, that may lead to other kinds of political breakthroughs also, and, and thinking transnationally. I think there's room for politics and shenanigans together. <laughs> Definitely. But I think his specific politics is more of a utopia. Mm. Um, and thinking about like what is not here yet and we're dreaming up a future of where we can beam images from New York to Seoul to Japan at the same time and then being connected through what he termed like some kind of electronic superhighway which we now call the internet who's imagining those possibilities at this time using video images and in that way what's really exciting about the season is the, the way that like imagining Asian America is also a kind of science fiction imagination that maybe like pressing the boundaries is tied to that which we don't even know about ourselves yet yeah he's all about like making everything complex very global multiple languages this idea of like you don't understand me but it's fine just come along for the ride yeah and i feel like that's very asian american with all of these different identities and we don't i mean i think as people who cover asian america we know that we don't understand anything. <laughs> but there's a way in which like Asian American culturalness is becoming more and more standardized. And I think that's what makes people a lot really nervous, right? It's like, yeah. it's like we bo just boba like, Asian Americanism. Yeah, like, and get out of the boba world. Don't like bring down boba. <laughs> but it's like, what are all the other possibilities for this? Yeah, and I feel like we want to just explode everything, right? Yeah, and that's what he was doing without... He wasn't specifically exploding Asian America, but like the excitement of exploding categories, the lines between high and low art of electronic and tangible media, analog, organic and electronic. You know, there's a lot for us to, to learn from. I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history.
what are we listening to here? That was the sound of one of the interactive pieces in the exhibit called Random Access, where Namjoon Peck decided to take the magnetic tape that you find in cassette players and just kind of randomly put an array of it on the walls. Yeah, so I mean, this is 1963. So think about this like also when the Beatles were doing experiments with, with tape. So it was on the mind of a lot of artists, not necessarily of consumers who were still listening mostly to audio on vinyl, but they were so fascinated that there's this like dark brown strip of magnetic tape that somehow magically, electronically, if you take a magnetic head to it, so they basically deconstructed a cassette player. They made the magnetic head handheld so you could just hold it up against the tape and find at random points what the sound is on that tape. Unlike celluloid film, where you can just hold up the celluloid to the sky and then see what image this frame is. With magnetic tape, you can't. It's not like you can see what the grooves are or like the array of, of electronic magnetic patterns on the tape is to, to tell what the sound is. It's all sort of a mystery. And so Namju Pike is really having fun with this. You can just pick up the magnetic head yourself and make it touch the magnetic tape and what sound will come out of it. The curator explained it to us as they were looking for a non-linear way to think about recorded sound. Recorded sound is usually linear, like from point A to point Z. But what happens if you just poke at it <laughs> at random spots? What happens if it's choose-your-own-adventure audio? Exactly, yeah. And is that music? It's not not music. <laughs> oh, wow, I learned something. <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about why we're here for our sci-fi season. Thinking about even this piece, right, 1963, like this would have felt like it was out of the future. If you imagine like going into a museum when there, yeah, yeah, there's paintings and there's, there's like other kinds of modern art and sculpture, which is still sort of tangible art. You see it; it's it's visual. Whereas this is the visual component to this, namely these magnetic strips that are taped to a wall, is sort of hiding the phantom work that is actually here, which is the sound embedded within it. And so again. 1963, even today, like there's something kind of mystically futuristic about this. Futuristic as in like this is science and technology, but mystical too, in the sense that like, there might be some kind of hidden spirit that we don't even see. And, and so think about science fiction as fusing these kinds of like the philosophical and the technological. And Namjoon Pai, he senses in these sort of mundane objects like magnetic tape, the potential for some kind of artistic experience and sort of a, a creative experience on the part of the viewer and listener walking through a museum. Yeah, I think one of the fun things about revisiting older sci-fi films is that they're kind of imagining what it's like now. <laughs> we saw that in last week's episode with Robot Stories where it's like, oh, in the year 2024. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're not quite there yet. But walking into this exhibit and seeing this retrospective, it's kind of weird because it's like you're looking at his imagination of the future that seems both kind of from a distant past, but also like close to what we have in the present. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, and, and in some ways it's like, yeah, these like quaint objects, like, like CRT TVs and analog video, which we don't have anymore. Just even like seeing the lines, right? The lines on the TV screen? Yeah, the lines on TV screen and also like the, the kind of faded images seem like they're from the past. It's hard for us to perceive how future looking this was. And yet you can also see through his imagination that like, like 
no one is still nobody is doing this so it still seems like it's something of the future who is doing things like the tv cello right like this is where he constructs a working playable cello out of tv screens so the exhibit is actually organized not only by theme but also by collaborator and one of his frequent collaborators was the musician Charlotte Mormon. They both had this idea that it was weird that there was no sexuality in classical music. So that was something that they kind of played with a lot and made it a little bit risque for the time. Now it doesn't seem that <laughs> controversial. 1967, she performed movements on the cello in various states of nudity. <laughs> and that's when the police officers came. She got charged for indecent exposure. And she was also fired from the American Symphony Orchestra. So because of that, he ended up creating more art for her, like a bra made out of television so she could be covered up. And then she, he also made glasses made out of, not television, but like video, right? Yeah, so that the TV eyeglasses, I mean, that's very much like Google Glass or something, like a virtual reality. There's certain things like... The TV chair, if you look underneath the seat, there's a television screen. That is sort of the convergence of things that we think about as very, very non-electronic, like a cello or a chair. Yeah. Things that like they're functional because of their tangibleness. Like what good can electronic currents do for a, a cello? And, and so he started mocking that, that usual divide. And really still like the Charlotte Mormon performance so this is like late 60s. So this is just a little bit after like Dylan goes electric, right? In 1965, where like folk music fans are scandalized because Bob Dylan's using an electric guitar or something or using electricity to amplify slash distort his sound in a way that's not appropriate. Nanjun Peck wants to take this in even more scandalous, strange and creative directions. Some of which to us are not that strange today, like like the TV eyeglasses. But I think the TV chair is the perfect example of this. <laughs> like, like to what extent does furniture need a TV in it? But of course, we see that now, right? Like we see TVs built into walls. Maybe back then they would think like, but it's a wall. Why would you destroy a wall that way? But now it's like we unfortunately can't even perceive the possibility. Like we need our screens embedded everywhere. And that, I don't know if, to what extent he was predicting it, but let, but more more that he was sensing it in a kind of creative wonderland. So he's like playing with like, what do we do with furniture once it is converged with electronic media? So it's sort of like a fascination, it's curiosity, it's a little bit of estrangement, but it's never, he never goes as far as critiquing it, where he never goes as far as to say like, this is the end of humanity as we know it, because that's not him. Like he, he is so curious about what happens when these things fuse, not just when furniture and electronic media converge what happens when human beings and electronic media converge do we become cyborgs i mean is is tv cello and charlotte mormon's performance of the tv cello a kind of cyborgian possibility and like mixing this with sexuality i think brings out that promiscuity um in a way that still feels to us like oh, he got away with this could we get away with this now at the time it was probably very scandalous but i just feel like it's all very playful i think when you walk through the exhibit it's not so much like dangerous you know it's just like oh my gosh it's, you know what i mean it's just... it is dangerous because specifically he's doing this to classical music uh, right? he, he's like destroying there's, there's a community of people who need classical music to remain classical uh, it's in the title like if we change that we're undermining what we love about it whatever <laughs> this is the kind of like He's breaking down high and low art. Yeah. And in a way that was very much part of a lot of modern art in the 20th century. That's not dangerous. <laughs> it's dangerous if you think about it in terms of you're setting fires to 
a certain kind of privileged class that wants to feel like they are not susceptible to these kinds of shenanigans. So it's only dangerous to rich white people. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, true. So that's not really dangerous. So to us, it is just... It's just fun. It's all fair game. All fair game. <laughs> but he's also doing this in museums, right? He's not doing this in the street. Oh, some of his things or shenanigans are in the streets. But like these are pieces that are in concert halls. They are in museums. And so as spaces of high art, therefore are under a different kind of scrutiny, perhaps by the same people who go to see classical music. So he is definitely stomping in places. He knows exactly who he's rocking here. And he does this with religion too, both Western and Eastern religion. So my favorite pieces of his are the ones that involve the Buddhist sculpture. Oh, yeah. So tell us about that. Yeah. So he has a, like a famous 1974 piece called TV Buddha. And it's an installation where on one end, he has this like 18th century Buddha sculpture, pretty small one. And on the other side, he has a CCTV camera that is filming that sculpture and then sending that electric signal to a CRT TV in front of the Buddha sculpture. So basically what it is, is a Buddha sculpture looking at himself on TV <laughs> live. The funny part is the staticness of it, right? Like the, the Buddha sculpture is not moving. So why does this need to be a moving image? So there's that to it. Also, there's a live element, right? right? Like that in theory, <laughs> no matter what hour of the day you come, it's a different image on the screen even though it never changes. But then of course it's like Buddha is seated in an iconic position watching TV, right? We think about like Buddha's meditation as like being inward and in touch with the cosmos, but here he's in touch with the electronic image, in touch with the TV, and specifically his own image on TV. <laughs> so it turns into this kind of narcissism. But it's also just like a fun collage yeah. of traditional and modern, electronic and physical and organic. And of course, the religious and the profane of of television. I mean, like in the 1960s, like television was considered, I mean, it still isn't, at least until this recent renaissance of television, like TV was considered trash. Like, like this is, this is what's rotting all of our brains. And he's having Buddha watch it. Yeah, Buddha watch himself. Live. Buddha is the original Instagram influencer. Exactly. But but the fact that we're even saying that, he's basically, yeah, it's like he's doing a selfie of him, like a, a live stream of himself. <laughs> but just to himself. <laughs> and us, anyone who goes to the museum. Yeah, and, and then so there's all these other kinds of cool installations here that involve... There's another one that I really love with an egg. Oh, it's called Egg Grows oh, yeah, in the yeah, 1980s. Yeah. And it's like a camera... On an egg. Live camera on an egg. <laughs> And then that's being wired to a bunch of different TVs that are get growing bigger and bigger. So it's like the egg is growing. So there's something about like when you, when you walk into the room, I mean, I've seen this uh, pictures of this installation, but to see it, how big it is, and you're in awe of all these different sized eggs on these screens. And you're like, oh, that, that's like a like visually very enticing. And then you just walk towards the actual egg. And you're like, oh, it's just a little egg right here. <laughs> <laughs> that's very, um, that feels very modern and how I think life is right now in general, right? We see all these images, not only of celebrities, but of ourselves and our friends and everybody on social media and everything's kind of heightened and everything's bigger, everything's flashier, everything's, you know, growing. And replicated. But if you, you know, as people who work in the media, you're like, oh no, but in real life, if you see the camera and the person, it's just this tiny egg. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when I look at the egg, I'm like, should this be refrigerated? Like, did it change every, every couple of days? 
but these are but these are the questions of the organic world that we don't ask of the electronic world and, and so he's putting this all together in a way that like makes us ask questions we never thought we would ask in a museum yeah another one that's really cool that i think a lot of people have been putting on instagram and that's the other thing right a lot of people are putting all of this on instagram the exhibit this exhibit is hot right now i know right it, but like it's because it's so visual right in the way that like the yayoi kusama exhibit has been it's immersive it's colorful and it's totally accessible like you walk into this and you just sort of get it like you don't you don't necessarily need to be an art historian yeah but the piece i was talking about which i think has probably been instagram but it's just not the same as seeing it in person is the tv garden one yeah where you walk in and it's it's really just like a big garden lots of foliage and leaves but then inside the garden there's like a whole bunch of televisions playing just these random things because the televisions are positioned as if it's almost like they are the melons that are growing <laughs> amongst the, the plants. Yeah, it looks like watermelons. Yeah. But the watermelons are playing... All kinds of like, like funny commercials and like musical performances. <laughs> Just like stuff from, its, from the time. It's in a dark room, so it's kind of like mesmerizing. Yeah, it totally is. The other religion media one would be the Sistine Chapel, which he did in 1993. This is something he did for the 1993 Venice Biennale. It's sort of like the Nam Jun Paik greatest hits. He takes clips of videos he's made through the years and was sort of walking into this room that seems kind of heavenly. I mean, heavenly is sort of like when you, when you walk into like the Venetian hotel in Las Vegas, like it's something kind of fake about it. But the idea is that this is the new Sistine Chapel in which on the ceilings aren't the gods of ancient times, but like the contemporary gods, namely television. And there's a lot to look at and listen to. Yeah, the way that it's curated is that you go through all of his work first and then you end up in this exhibit. So by the time you get there, you are sort of familiar with a lot of his work and then everything you see surrounding you on the walls is all the work that he's done. It's kind of a cool thing. One of the interesting things about it to me is that I think in the installation at SF MoMA, they mentioned that, you know, this is a 1993 project, but this is a 2021 installation because obviously, like, they're not using projectors from 1993. They're using contemporary projectors. So the images themselves, like, that are projected on the screen has, like, a material difference from how it originally was. And so, like, this is a kind of a tribute to the machinery of electronic media that is constantly evolving. Every time they, they reinstall this, they're using different technologies. It's something that happens like throughout some of these pieces, like the like TV chair. Is this the original television that is being used? Is, are these the original cables that were used? And to what extent does the material exhibit begin and end? Like, do the cables count? Does the hard drive that it's connected to, does that count as part of the exhibit? That, that to me is like super fascinating with regard to this notion of science fiction, right? Like, how does one archive science fiction? I mean, obviously, I think we do want to, to the extent that we can, preserve the original elements, try to make it as close to the way it was originally constructed as possible because that historical moment is important. But if the spirit of science fiction is itself the future and not thinking into the past, do we need to update the material to capture what it was trying to accomplish for contemporary audiences? I mean, for film fans, this is the like eternal like Star Wars problem like that George Lucas keeps digitizing his movies and adding digital elements to them. Like, whereas should we be preserving the 35 millimeter original? But maybe like the spirit of it has all along been to look forward into the future, in which case maybe we do need new digital versions. Of course, maybe the, the Star Wars example is a bad one because ultimately it is about 
George Lucas and Disney doing a cash grab. <laughs> but with regard to something like Nam Jun Paik's work, in order to continue to have that shock value and to make it re- resonate with our own contemporary consumption of the media, to what extent do we need to update it? Yeah, I buy that though, because I think basically when you're looking at this stuff, it's like, yeah, you could preserve it and have it exactly how it is originally, but then that's erasing the environment that, you know, it was seen in, the type of audience that was seeing it at the time. So you're kind of just thinking about the art piece without thinking about the interaction with the viewer. So that's probably the same thing with sci-fi films too it's like when you see it for the first time and you have that experience with it where you are in that moment where the technology is at that moment all of these things that we're talking about in this podcast like where are the conversations about race in the moment what are the politics of the moment like that all shapes how you view something so i think there is an argument for like oh if you're gonna you want a balance of seeing what the art was in its original state but then also like trying to create that original feeling that people got when they watched the art right so i think that's an interesting part of this exhibit where it's like yeah it's not going to be exactly what it was in the 1960s but can you still capture what it was like to see it in the 1960s by bringing it here yeah i mean as a historian i I want both ways right I, i want i want to preserve the spirit i also want to preserve the materials but you 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 bring up some interesting points about the politics and, and race, for instance. Like, we haven't talked at all about um, the fact that Nam Jun Paik is Korean. I mean, I mentioned the Buddha sculpture, and I haven't done the research in, to really know like what he went through as a Korean artist in the United States during this period, also in Germany, where he was before. In the display cases, there's stuff that's not even really art, but there's like a note, <laughs> a note in a letter to one of the Fluxus founders where he wrote, yellow peril, exclamation point, same moi. It's me. <laughs> and that's kind of one of the few things that you see where he directly addresses his Asian-ness and any anti-Asian feelings, you know? Yeah, I mean, that moment, that yellow peril moment in his work, where he actually uses these words, makes me wonder so much about what that's a reference to. If he's mocking it, if he is calling attention to his own racialization, like, we don't know. That would require more research. In this description, it says, the artist embraced his outsider status and rejected any kind of authoritarian nationalism, which makes a lot of sense. Right, and so I think that takes us to his actual politics, which to me has always been more utopian and universalist than national. Um, He did a piece called Global Groove, 1973, where... He's beaming images live via satellite, I think, bringing together like Seoul and Tokyo and New York City. And today that's just, you know, we do that on Zoom. Yeah. (laughs) Like he was thinking about like live international television, breaking down borders. Like these electronic media isn't here just to play games, but also perhaps to bring us together in unprecedented ways that earlier media uh, electronic or otherwise was not quite doing yet. So he was. So this, these are ways in which he's often credited as like envisioning something like a global internet, like the electronic superhighway. I should credit Jun Okada in a piece that she wrote about Nam Jun Paik, um, where she's talking about yeah, there's this sort of like utopian, cosmopolitan vision that he represents. Also underneath that is an Asian. The question of to what extent was that actually an impossibility for an Asian person to embody in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. And she 
she connects us with Vincent Chin in a really powerful way. Mm, tell me about that. Nanju Pike like famously used these new Sony cameras, and Sony itself Japanese, right? And so Nanju Pike, his artwork was associated with Japanese media, and to the extent that we think about. Japanese media, like Sony, is not Japanese, but like for the world, right? Like this is international. This is utopian. Like now we have these technologies that can bring us all together, that can do magical things. But we also do know that there was a backlash, and Vincent Chin was a victim of that backlash. Right in the 1980s, we think about Toyota and other Japanese car companies. Like they're just car companies. These are just the latest technology. This is international. But Vincent Chin was killed because he was Asian, and people associated him with the takeover by Japanese goods. And so, we do know that that utopia was never fulfilled. In fact, it ended in bloodshed. And so, not thinking about Namjoon Pike in terms of his Asianness might be denying the fact that there is. Below it, like something that the art world has sort of refused to talk about with regard to him, and also the myth of electronic media—that it's not just utopianism, but that it is racialized, whether we want to talk about it or not. That's really relevant to now, I think, where in some ways we've gotten so close to the utopia, you know, with the globalism, and especially as part of the Asian diaspora. But it also asks us to think about to what extent are these objects that we think about as so utopic are they still being racialized in certain ways? And we think about like how TikTok is associated with China, yeah, and also how Apple is like that's the American brand versus Samsung or something. So, so, so these fights are they're still happening even while we consider these as like technologies of the future. Yeah, at the same time, we should not deny Peck's like real ambition to imagine this utopia. Maybe we're just not there yet. Like maybe we're still. Fighting fights that he wishes we would stop fighting now about things like national borders, but in looking backwards to him as an artist, we should also think about his place within a racialized art world. Just the fact that he is so known in the art world, but not really known that much in the film world or in the Asian American world. I'm happy that we have him in our season. Let's let these worlds collide and think of the possibilities of that. Yeah, I mean, I think these are boundaries that we usually. Enforce for political reasons and for good political reasons, but in a in a season on science fiction, I, I like what you're saying about let, letting worlds collide. Like that, that is definitely in the spirit of science fiction, and and we should let science fiction imagine different ways of identity that may not seem useful to us now, but that may be useful later, like like a TV chair. Yeah, but at the end of the day, lead with the shenanigans. <laughs> yeah, let the shenanigans lead the way, and then we'll we'll explain them as art historians later. That's basically the mission of Saturday School. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, well, this time I would say one of the missions of Saturday School is to encourage people to go see this exhibit, which is going on now until October third, twenty twenty one. Also, check out SF Mama's website. They have all kinds of cool goodies there, including <laughs> a, a video of his not that useful robot. Roaming the street was so hilarious. So yeah, yeah, check out the exhibition. It's it's well worth it if you happen to be in the Bay Area. We're back in person, sort of, right? Like we're all like getting back into the world. And so first of all, like make museums part of the world that we're exploring now. But I think it's also a reminder that even when we're so fixated on electronic media, there's a way in which electronic media takes on physical manifestations. And that are materially interesting as things you can look up to. You can walk around. You can look at the wiring behind. I was so obsessed with looking at the wiring behind some of these these installations. And also, like emotionally resonant too, right? Because I think that's another kind of thing about 
they're always talking about, oh, like everyone on our screens and the relationships formed over social media are not real. But all of these things are kind of tied together. I think that's part of his philosophy, really. And it's so exciting to see that generation like embracing this exhibition even through Instagram. I love like seeing all the young people at this exhibition soaking it in, even if it's with their phones. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Talis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is Wake Up Sat School. Class dismissed. We're still here, and we're going strong. It's an exciting time in Asian America. There are more movies, TV shows, books, and music reflecting us than ever. But all of these represent just a small slice of Asian American culture and experiences. So what do we do? Tell more slices. Asian Americana is a show that explores these slices of distinctly Asian American culture and history. We've talked about how Chinese Americans built California's Sacramento Delta, the art scene turns gallery institution giant robot, a play that explores the lost Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, of course, Boba, just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at asianamericana.com or on your podcast app.